0: Hey, Tyler Johnson here, pastor of Mission Church in Walnut Creek, California. I want to say thank you for checking out our podcast. Our hope is simple that this message would bring you hope. Enjoy. How are we doing, church? Man, I'm fired up after that worship set. Are you fired up? Anyone fired up here today? Come on, it's good to see you guys. Last week, Pastor Tyler, our senior pastor, uh, started this series called The Making of a Great Church. And it was such a fantastic message. He talked about really the foundation of a great church, as simple as it sounds, is love. And I love it because one of our goals here at Mission Church, if you're brand new to our church, one of our goals here is to be the most loving church on the planet. And we talked about how that's the foundation of a great church a church that loves each other, a church that builds each other up, a church that encourages each other. So if you missed out, I want to encourage you to go on YouTube this week and check out that message. But I want to build on that idea. This morning we're going to continue the series the making of a great church. And if you're taking notes, the title of my message today is a great church is a free church. A great church is a free church. I want to talk about freedom today. We're going to read a passage of scripture together, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to dive right into the message. The scripture this morning comes from Zechariah chapter 3. It's in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. Zechariah chapter 3, I'm going to read it for us. Beginning in verse 1, this is what the scriptures say. Then the Lord showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the messenger from the Lord, and the adversary was standing by his right side to accuse him. And the Lord said to the adversary, The Lord rebukes you, adversary. The Lord, the one choosing Jerusalem, rebukes you. Is this one not a log snatched from the fire? Joshua was wearing filthy clothes and standing before the messenger. He responded to those standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And he said to Joshua, Look, I have removed your guilt from you. Put on priestly robes. He said, Put on a clean turban upon his head. And so they put a clean turban upon his head and they dressed him in garments while the Lord's messenger stood by. And then the Lord's messenger admonished Joshua. The Lord of heavenly forces proclaims, if you walk in my path, if you will keep my charge, then you will lead my house and guard my courts. And I will allow you to walk among those standing here. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much. I thank you for the gift of the scriptures. Lord, what a gift they are to us. The Lord, you wrote this book that's just a giant love letter, Lord, written to each of us. And Lord, today I pray that you would take us deeper, that you would bring us closer to your heart. The Lord, you would help us to understand you more than we ever have before. Would you open up our eyes, Jesus, to see you this morning? Would you open up our ears to hear you? Would you open up our hearts, Jesus, so that we could be transformed and be made more like you? We love you so much in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen, amen. amen. Awesome, awesome. Well, hey, a couple of weeks ago, uh, a very, very kind lady at our church came up to me and uh, said, hey, I I was actually, I was on YouTube, and I was listening to uh, a couple of old, like, mission church sermons, and I found your sermon from January, January 6th, in fact. It was this message called Hovering Over the Waters that I preached, and it was about, like, having anticipation and expectation and excitement for what God is actually doing and going to do in your life, and she said, I listened to it and encouraged me, and in fact, I think that's your best sermon. I think it's your best sermon. And I was like, oh, it's so sweet, thank you so much. And yet inside, I have to confess, inside, I, I remember that sermon, January 6th, hovering over the waters. All I remember about that night was how miserable I was. Okay, and let me let me explain, all right? I, I plan my outfits in advance when I preach. Don't judge me, okay? I know that's not a surprise to any of you, okay? But I was like, okay, I got, I got, I'm I going to have my Yeezys. I'm going to have, like, some black skinny jeans. I bought this brand-new Justin Timberlake. Like, he did a collab with Levi's jean jacket with, like, the faux fur inside. And it wasn't just fur around the collar. It was, like, fur around the whole jacket. And so I was, like, I was pumped. I was like, I'm going to look good as I preach, you know. It was like what Michael Jordan said, you know, you look good, you feel good, you feel good, you play good, you preach good, you know. Never mind. Okay, so anyway, I, I was super excited, and I show up, and it was one of those, those weekends when we actually got kicked out of Las Lomas, uh, out of our location here. And so we were at Walnut Creek Presbyterian Church and it was a night service. And this particular night, it was pouring down rain like pouring down rain. And I'm thinking to myself, "Is what a perfect night for it. Justin Timberlake, Levi's jacket. This is amazing. It's all working out, you know. Well, I get there. It, it, it's so humid outside, even though it's pouring down rain. And and, and the heater is on inside the sanctuary. And so it, it's like, it's so uncomfortably warm already. It's kind of triggering my anxiety a little bit. And then worship, you know, we, uh, worship was just awesome. I remember it. I get on the stage I get ready to preach and I make a joke. And and if I make a joke here at Los like, thankfully, I can hear you guys laugh, like, thank God, but at Walnut Creek Presbyterian, I can't hear anything, and so I'm preaching, I make this joke, and in my mind, nobody laughs, and then immediately, I'm just like, boom, and it's just flush, I'm, I'm, I'm blushing, I'm red, I'm really, really hot and uncomfortable at this moment, and I start sweating, and the only thing I can remember is how much I was sweating during that sermon, like, I actually went back on YouTube and watched it, I did this. More times than I can even count in that message the whole time I was thinking to myself like oh my gosh this is disgusting and and, and the reality is I I remember having a conversation inside my own head that night I do I literally as I was preaching I remember Caleb just take off your jacket (laughs) (laughs) right thank you Casey (laughs) our church coordinator okay keeping me on track Um, I remember having this conversation in my head just take off your jacket And inside my head, I'm like, man, I am sweating so much. I do not want anyone to see what's underneath this jacket. This is disgusting. Like, I feel disgusting. Again, I'm so sorry. It's a little graphic. But I I was like, I know I'm pitting out. I know my chest is sweating. I know my back's covered in sweat. I know if I take this jacket off, it's going to be really bad for everybody. And so it was one of those, like, few moments when, most of the time when I'm preaching, I'm like, I really like this. Like, I'm like, oh, this is what I'm called to do. That night, all I could think about was getting off the stage. I was like, i got to get off. This is so terrible. Oh my goodness. I am miserable inside. And and here's the worst part. I had really like I I tried to give the message everything I had even throughout the week. So I had rehearsed it. I had tried to memorize it. And I had done a good enough job with that that I was able to function still. I was able to perform still. But the only thing I could think about was how miserable I was inside. And that friends is how so many of us live our lives. We, We hate it like we really really do we hate wearing the jackets that we've created for ourselves the the, the jacket of perfection the the jacket of success the jacket of control the the, the jacket of importance the jacket of independence buying into this American lie of the self-made man the self-made woman psychologist Brene Brown she says that we are the most medicated addicted overweight and drunk culture in history Why? Because we are so miserable trying to hide what's underneath the jacket that we've put on. Man, underneath is real brokenness. Uh, Underneath is this piercing loneliness. Underneath is this rejection wound the size of California. Underneath is this deep, deep sense of shame. Underneath is fear and insecurity. Underneath is doubt and a whole lot of disbelief. But I, I think Jesus wants to tell us something this morning, that we can actually take off the jacket that it's safe enough in Jesus Christ to take off the jacket, that we are loved enough, that we are accepted enough, that we are actually God's sons and his daughters, just like we sang this morning, and we can experience the freedom and abundance of life that he has for us, we can actually take off the jacket. In the Gospels, which are the biographies of Jesus, there's this story about a man named Lazarus, and Lazarus was Jesus's friend, and the story goes that he gets sick and he actually dies, and Jesus actually shows up late to the scene, and this is where we pick up. It's in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 38. This is what the scriptures say. Jesus was deeply disturbed again when he came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone covered the entrance. Jesus said, remove the stone. R- remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, the smell it will be awful. He's been dead for four days. And Jesus replied, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see God's glory. And so they remove the stone. Here's the connection for us. Resurrection is available to us. Like, like whatever that type of resurrection that we need, that we've been counting on, that we've been praying for, that we've been waiting on God for, resurrection is actually available to us all. But we have to remove the stone. Like, we have to actually take off the jacket. And in the story, Martha goes, Jesus, if we remove the stone, it's not going to be pretty. Like, if we remove the stone, there's going to be an odor. It's going to stink. It's going to smell bad. It's not going to look good. In fact, he's been dead. He's been in the tomb for four days already. Why would we do anything about it now? And we say the same things to ourselves and to God, don't we? Oh, man, if I take the jacket off, if I remove the stone... If I let somebody into this piece of my heart, this piece of my life, it's not going to look good. It's going to (laughs) smell like it's got an odor. It's going to repulse people. People are going to reject me. It's going to hurt. I'll be real with you. Our fear of rejection can actually impede God's resurrection. Our, Our fear of rejection can actually hinder. It can halt. It can prevent God actually resurrecting our lives. You see, we're so afraid of what people will think. We're so afraid of being found unlovable. We're so afraid of being rejected to an even further degree that we never take off the jacket, that we never roll away the stone, and and we never let anyone, including ourselves and even including God, to see what's actually underneath the jackets that we've created. I I love what one of my favorite authors says, the late Henry Nowen. He, he wrote this journal that was later published, and this is what he says about himself in one of his journal entries. He says this, you complain that it is hard to pray, to experience the love of Jesus, but Jesus dwells in your fearful, never fully received self. When you befriend your true self and discover that it is good and beautiful, you will see Jesus there. Oh, and then he says this, I love it. Where you are most human, most yourself, Weakest, there Jesus lives. You see, we have to understand something else. Underneath may be brokenness, underneath may be loneliness, underneath may be rejection wounds, underneath maybe fill in the blank with whatever you're dealing with, but underneath is also where Jesus lives. Underneath Jesus is there. Zechariah, who wrote the scripture that we began, this, this message with under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was a prophet. And he was a priest uh, to the people of Israel during 5th century B.C. And, and during that time, Israel was actually in captivity under Persian rule, uh, rule. And in fact, in 538 B.C., God inspired the ruler Cyrus the Great to actually release the Israelites to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. The temple had been destroyed about 60 years even before that. And so now, during the time of Zechariah, 20 years after that, around 520 B.C., all the progress in the temple had actually come to a halt. It had, it had been stopped. It, it was started, but it was never finished. You, you ever feel like that? Like God began to do something incredible and beautiful and extraordinary in your life, and then he left it unfinished. You see, see, that's actually what Israel is feeling at the moment. That's what they're struggling with at the moment. They are so down and discouraged. They are bending beneath the weight of heavy taxes and foreign policies under Persian rule. They are beginning to actually give up hope. And then in steps Zechariah and his colleague and friend, the prophet Haggai. And all of a sudden, they begin to speak life into Israel again. And they speak hope into Israel again. And they speak love into Israel again. They say that the best is actually yet to come. They give them courage again. This is the context for the book of Zechariah. And more specifically, in Zechariah chapter 3, the scripture that we read together, the prophet Zechariah has this vision about Israel's religious leader of the day, Joshua the high priest. And I think that we can actually learn three things from this vision to help us take off the jacket, to help us actually roll away the stone, remove the stone, to help us actually find and experience freedom in Jesus Christ, because a great church... Is a free church. And so there are three things I'd like us to talk about, three things that we realize and that we learn from Zechariah chapter 3. The first is there is an adversary. The second is there is an authority. And the third, there is an admonishing. So we're going to unpack each of these. Let's begin with the first. There is an adversary. There is an adversary. Zechariah chapter 3 verse 1 says this, Then the Lord showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the messenger from the Lord, and the adversary was standing by his right side to accuse him. C.S. Lewis has been one of my heroes since I was 19 years old and the book that actually catapulted him into fame and into stardom is a book called The Screwtape Letters and it's about this like upper class demon actually writing letters to a lower class demon and giving him advice on how to actually like operate in the demonic. It's a very eerie book but at the same time it is like utterly profound. And what's interesting is that C.S. Lewis actually says this in the preface of that book. This is how he begins the whole thing. He says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which humanity can fall into about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive or unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight in, in other words we're not supposed to actually live in fear of the devil I I've met a lot of people like that they think the devil's behind every bush they're obsessed with them that's all they ever talk about the devil's attacking me the devil's after me the devil the devil the devil the devil they're obsessed but then I've also met people on the other end of the spectrum and let me be real today I think this is the one that our culture actually struggles with the, the latter. this one we, we actually just disbelieve in the devil entirely we think that it's either just this fanciful tale that's made up. We think that it's not reality, or we think that he's just in this little Halloween costume and we don't take it seriously whatsoever. I think that's actually what our culture is most tempted by. The thought pattern that we're most tempted by today. But in Second Corinthians chapter 2 verse 11, the apostle Paul, he's writing to the church and he makes this interesting statement. He says this, "Don't be taken advantage of by Satan. Be aware of his schemes. Be aware of his schemes." I'll be real, I don't actually like to talk about the devil much, but I want, to, I want to say three things about the adversary real quick. Three things I think we need to understand if we're actually going to find freedom as a church and even as individuals. Here's the first thing, okay? Is that the adversary is real. We have to understand the adversary is real. Like, this isn't just a made-up thing. This isn't just a legend. This isn't just tall tale. The adversary is real. Two weeks ago, our staff went down to Los Angeles for the Zoe Conference, and it was so much fun just being down there as a team, uh, hanging out together. Uh, we had some just bonding experiences, went to Santa Monica, even hit up Disneyland. Let's go. Um, and, uh, but the, the, the conference itself was amazing. I mean, the worship was incredible. Uh, the speakers were, like, world caliber, just top-notch. And there was one message in particular that really got me. It was by a senior pastor named Louis Giglio. He pastors Passion City Church in Atlanta, Georgia. It's a huge church. I mean, what God's doing through his ministry is unreal. And he gets up there and he he preaches on Psalm 23. And I gotta admit, I'm a pastor's kid, so I've grown up in church and heard a billion sermons on Psalm 23. And so immediately I'm like, oh, okay, here we go. I'm gonna, you know, take a nap during this one. And all of a sudden he starts preaching. And I'm not even gonna lie. Like by the end of the sermon, I'm like, have I ever even read Psalm 23? This is unreal. (laughs) I mean, he, he focused on like verse five, which is you set a table before me. You set a table. And I love it because his, his, his real big point is that God has actually prepared a table for you. Like, he paid it in full. He made the reservation. He's actually at the table waiting for you to, like, get off your phone or, or stop worrying incessantly about everything else going on in your life and actually sit down with him and enjoy relationship with him. He's actually set a table for us. It's incredible. I was like, mind-blown. I've never even seen that in Psalm 23. But then he said this, nine words I'll never forget. He goes... Don't let the enemy have a seat at your table. Yeah. Oh, don't let the enemy have a seat at your table. In other words, don't give the enemy an ear. Don't give him a voice in your life. Don't let him speak into your life. Don't let him say anything to you. Yeah. You see, the reality is it's, it's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? Because it all begins with just a, a little thought. You, you aren't appreciated by your spouse. You, you aren't taken care of by your God you aren't gonna make it out of this one. You're not worthy of love or respect. and Nobody sees how hard you work. Nobody understands what you are going through. And if we're not careful, all of a sudden the thought grows. Why? Because as I've said before, what sits in your head seeps in your heart. We have to understand that. What sits in our head seeps in our heart. And all of a sudden the thought becomes a belief and the belief becomes an action and the action becomes a consequence. We have to realize that the adversary is real, and he's not just some harmless hallmark character. He actually has one mission and one mission only, and it's to destroy your life. Jesus said in John chapter ten, ten, he said this, that the thief enters only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy every relationship that matters to you. He wants to destroy your calling. He wants to destroy everything that God is trying to do in your life. Thank you, Tanya. Ooh, I'm fired up. Tanya, you're the best, by the way. Can we get over Tanya? I love Tanya. Every time I see Tanya, like Tanya, you have a gift. You, I, I'm just, I, I hope I'm not embarrassing you. You have a gift, because, like, you don't even have to say anything. I'm just encouraged by your presence. I really am. It's incredible. So, love you big time. I'm going to transition real quickly and tell a story now. <laughs> for for a little bit, um, uh, my girl Jacqueline and I were obsessed with this, this TV show called, um, well, I'm not going to tell you what it's called, but it was about, it was, <laughs> it was on Netflix, I'm telling it all myself, it's uh, it's on Netflix and it's it traces the minds of serial killers. So it's like, <laughs> I know, I'm not going to tell you what it's called, just... Stop judging. Yeah, we'll figure it out. It's not that hard, okay? But it's these two detectives that actually go around, and they meet with, like, the nation's top serial killers, and they sit down to just, like, basically understand their thought process, understand, like, even how how they think, like, their childhoods. Like, I mean, what is going on inside of their brain to actually get them to the place that they're in? And the whole time, I mean, I'll be real. The show was so disturbing. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, I can't even imagine being one of those detectives and sitting down and having a conversation with one of these serial killers. I can't even imagine sitting down with one of these people, uh, just looking at evil in the face and just even hearing them talk, I just can't even imagine it. And then all of a sudden I had this realization that that's exactly what I do every time I let the adversary speak into my life. Man, we sit down with a murderer. We sit down with a serial killer. We sit down with the very personification of evil in this world, and we let him speak into our lives. Man, don't let the enemy have a seat at your table. Yeah. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 44, speaking to the adversary, he said, he's a murderer from the beginning. He has never stood for the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever that liar speaks, he speaks according to his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yeah. This segues us into our, our very next kind of sub point. The adversary is real, and we have to understand the adversary is a liar. The adversary is a liar. I think that the story of Jesus' temptation can help us out here a lot. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 4, and this is how the story goes. Beginning in verse 1, it says this, that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If, everybody say if. Come on, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if, everybody say if, if If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Notice there's a a pattern here. The devil, the adversary, attacks Jesus' identity and then offers him a shortcut. He attacks his identity, offers him a shortcut. Attacks his identity, offers him a shortcut. Got to be real, all the temptations that the devil presents to Jesus here are shortcuts. There are ways for Jesus to prove his divinity without actually having to go to the cross. And I'll be real, most of our temptations are shortcuts too. And we need to learn just the easy way that God's way is actually the best. But, but, but notice what happens even before this moment. Jesus is attacking, I mean, the devil is attacking Jesus' identity. He's saying, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God. You see, he tries to get him to doubt who he actually is. Hear this. The devil is a liar, but he's subtle about it. He, he's strategic about it. He's slippery. Man, man he, he deploys the same tactic when he tries to tempt us. If Jesus really loved you, he wouldn't let you go through this. If Jesus really cared about you, he would have answered your prayers a long time ago. If, if, if you really are God's son, God's daughter, oh, you would have experienced breakthrough by now. If, if, if. Man, we need to hear this. When the adversary comes, we need to change the if into an I am. And even if we're not feeling it, man, we need to declare it over our lives. I am God's son. I am God's daughter. I am going to get through this. I am enough. I have enough. I am loved. I am forgiven. The list can go on and on and on. We need to make those declarations over our life. Why? Because an empty mind is the devil's playground. Man, if we don't fill our mind with the truth, the devil's gonna come right in there and fill it with something else. He's a liar, but he's subtle about it, he's strategic about it. Fill your mind with the truth, fill your mind with the Word of God, fill your mind with encouragement from people that love you, the people that you, you can trust, people that have your back. Man, that's what happens in Zechariah's vision. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 2, God makes this strange statement. I don't know if you caught it when we were reading it together, but it's it's kind of a peculiar statement. He says this, is this one not a log snatched from the fire? What in the world is that about? It's God's way of telling Joshua, I choose you. I saved you. I got you out of that fire. And I know you feel like you're just in another fire, but I promise I got you out of that one, I'm going to get you through all of them. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm not gonna leave you I chose you I still choose you I love you I still love you man we got to make those declarations over our life the adversary is real the adversary is a liar oh and here's the good news come on the adversary is defeated we have to understand that the adversary is defeated Track and and football were kind of my two main sports growing up. And I'll never forget my senior year of high school, our homecoming football game. We were playing this team called Elma. And they're, uh, you know, like, how do I say it kindly? There is no way to say it kindly. They were terrible. They were like the worst of the league, losing every single game. And that's what homecoming games are all about, right? I mean, you want to, like, pick a team that you can just absolutely destroy and annihilate. And our coaches would be like, you know, okay, we can't take it for granted we got to show up to play. You know, this isn't guaranteed. But we all knew in the back of our minds, man, like, the victory is already ours. Like, this thing is already over. And I actually, I looked it up. I went back to the 2009 Tomwater High School football statistics, and we beat them 67 to 13. I mean, we, like, we crushed them. And I remember our, like, first stream, we were out by the halftime. I mean, it was, it was amazing. It was incredible. Here, here's the thing. I think one of the, the biggest lies that we can fall into is to think that Jesus and the devil are actually on the same level. To think that it is actually a competition. To, to think that there's just some cosmic competition and Jesus and the devil are just duking it out and we're like, oh, Jesus, please win. Jesus is like, there's no competition. Yeah. I mean, we got to understand a, f- a couple of things. First of all, without getting into like the like, deep theology here this morning, but the first thing is that the devil was a created being. Jesus is God. Like Jesus literally makes a statement and he says to his disciples, he goes, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Like, of course. In fact, you know how the devil's defeated in the scriptures? By the breath of God. It's not even a fight. Jesus shows up, and he breathes, and the devil's gone. I mean, that, that, like, literally, there's no competition. The devil is like Elma, you guys. I mean, we have to understand that. He really is. I know it's kind of a joke, but it's not. Like, he's already defeated, and he knows it. He knows his team doesn't stand a chance. In Jesus, we have the victory. In Jesus, man, we are already more than conquerors. That's scripture. That's Romans chapter eight, verse thirty eight. Man, in Jesus, oh, in Jesus, we know how the story ends. The reality is we still gotta suit up and get on the field and go to war for others though, right? Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 says this, I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. I love this. The accuser of the brothers and sisters who accuses them day and night before our God has been thrown down. They gained victory over him on account of the blood of the lamb, a.k.a. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and the word of their witness. Our confession actually fallen. him. Man, there's an adversary He's real. He actually wants to destroy your life. And he's a liar. And he's subtle about it. He's slippery about it. But he's defeated. Man, we got to walk in a victory. We have to walk in that authority. And that leads me to my next point. There is an adversary, but there is an authority. There is an authority. Man, in Zechariah's vision, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 2, it says this, that the Lord said to the adversary, so the adversary was standing next to Joshua, accusing him, lying to him, lying about him, and then this is where we pick up verse 2, the Lord said to the adversary, the Lord rebukes you, adversary, the Lord, the one choosing Jerusalem, rebukes you. Now, in the, in the Hebrew language, the word rebuke, is, it's, a, it's a strong word. And it's used several times throughout the Old Testament. And one of the interesting things is w- in, in one incident, it's actually used about a disciplinary action between a human and its pet, like its animal. And, and, and any dog owners out there? Anybody own a dog? Come on, come on. You, you'll know that, call it whatever you want, you're going to have to rebuke your dog every once in a while. And, and depending on the dog, maybe a whole lot, okay? But, but what, what does that look like? Like, no, you know, what, what are you doing <laughs> Did I do that well? Am I, am I good? You know, was that a good rebuke? Okay, uh, what is that doing? You're, you're putting it in its proper place. And guys, that's actually the authority that we have in Jesus Christ. That's the authority that we have in Jesus Christ. That's the picture that the scriptures are actually giving us. That when temptation comes, we rebuke it and we put it in its proper place. That when insecurity comes, we rebuke it and we put it in its proper place. That when a lie or an accusation comes, we rebuke it and put it in its proper place. That when the adversary comes, we rebuke him and we put him in his proper place. But, but, but notice, notice who does the rebuking. Notice the power. Notice where it comes from. Notice the source. It's not I rebuke you. It's not Pastor Caleb rebukes you. It's not Pastor Tyler rebukes you. What is it? The Lord rebukes you. Man, we have power in the name of Jesus Christ, and we need to start living in it. We need to start walking in it. We need to realize that, man, we have authority in the name of Jesus Christ. The greatest power in the cosmos lives inside of you. Do you believe it? Come on, I believe it, but I'll be real. I don't always live like it. I don't. I still walk around so insecure and so afraid sometimes, man. We need to claim the authority that we have in Jesus Christ. Zechariah's vision continues, and in verse 3, he says this. Joshua was wearing filthy clothes and standing before the messenger. He responded to those before him, take off his filthy clothes. And he said to Joshua, look, I have removed your guilt from you, put on priestly robes. And so he put a clean turban upon his head. And they dressed him in garments while the Lord's messenger stood by. I don't know how to say this. I used to have an accent when I preached. It's the weirdest thing. It really is. Like I I remember preaching at my former church and uh, I got off the stage, and this family came up to me, and they're like, Caleb, like, wow, this message, it was so good, it it, it encouraged us so much, we're just, wow, we're so blessed, we're brand new to the area, we just love service so much, I, we just gotta know, we're trying to figure it out, like, where are you from, like, are you from Texas, because you have a southern accent, and then the whole time I'm thinking to myself, like, I'm from Seattle like that's the opposite of, of Texas and and the reality was I was you know in this phase where I would listen to so many podcasts and everyone that I was listening to preached for whatever reason even though they were all from Seattle uh, with this like southern accent like welcome to church you know kind of hearing that man you know I mean it was like that kind of vibe and so I just like I guess that's what I got to do to be a good preacher and so I, I started to preach like that and and all of a sudden I, I got this job offer down in Palm Springs moved to Palm Springs and it was this big church and I' remember the first sermon I preached down there. I mean, I was going for it. Again, it was like one of those jacket moments, man. I was dripping because I was so into it. And, and I saw the entire pastoral staff of this church in the very back. And I'm not exaggerating. They actually had like yellow notepads out and they were taking notes and they were critiquing like literally everything I was saying, everything that, you know, I could polish, everything that I could work on, all that kind of stuff. And, and I knew what was waiting for me on my Monday morning staff meeting. And so I, I, I go to the staff meeting and oh my gosh, like I, I sit down, and I'm all proud of myself, like, oh, I brought it, you know? And they look at me, and they're like, Caleb, you know, you did a good job. Uh, what is up with this southern accent? They're like, <laughs> stop it, you know? Just stop! And I'm like, oh my gosh, this hurts, you know? They're like, seriously, you're not from the south, bro! You know, like, quit acting like you are. Like, just be yourself. Find your own voice. And I'll be real, man, I I, I was so uncomfortable in that moment, like entirely uncomfortable. It was so painful. I felt so vulnerable. I'll be real. I was so embarrassed in that moment, but, oh, it transformed me as a communicator because it actually forced me to go on this journey of actually finding my own voice. You see, it was one of the best things that ever happened to me in ministry, that feedback, but it hurt so much in the moment. And friends, getting free kind of looks like that. You see, taking off the jacket of our lives is uncomfortable and it's vulnerable. Rolling away the stone is scary and it hurts. But man, it is the only way to real freedom. It is the only way to inner peace. It is the only way to life and life to the fullest. A great church is a free church and a great life is a free life. But getting free is hard work. It requires you actually opening up the scripture, opening up the, the Bible and actually reading it. It requires you actually sitting down long enough with your phone away from you to actually hear God's voice. It requires you to actually give the Holy Spirit unlimited access to speak into your life. It requires you being honest and vulnerable. Oh, I'm going to keep going. It requires you getting in a community, which I'll be real, is always messy. If humans are involved, it's going to be messy. But it requires you getting in a community. It requires you actually looking at your pain and your brokenness and your disappointment in the face and then turning it to Jesus. Sometimes, it actually requires you going to Christian counseling. And I'll be real, because I think there's like an inappropriate like stigma about counseling in the church, and I want to lift that. I went to counseling for three years. Three years. I felt like I was in counseling forever during that period of my life. I don't know where I'd be without it. I don't know where I'd be without a counselor by the name of Joan Edwards. I'm giving her a shout out. She doesn't even go to our church, man, but she transformed my life. Man, getting free is hard work. But man, we don't realize what we're missing until we actually get free. And we don't realize how much we were in bondage, how miserable we actually were underneath the jacket of our life until we get free. You see, in Zechariah's vision, Joshua has to take off his filthy clothes before he can put on priestly robes. And God wants to do the same for us. He wants to clothe us in, in priestly robes. But first, he has to set us free from the filthy clothes that we've been wearing for so long. Galatians chapter five, verse one says this, that for freedom, Christ set us free. For freedom you see in the moment taking off your jacket feels like exposure in the moment rolling away the stone in your life removing the stone it feels like torture in the moment allowing the holy spirit to actually like do heart surgery it feels so painful and we have the temptation in front of us to go god what are you doing why are you doing this to me and he's saying it's for freedom for freedom i set you free It's actually for your good. It's for your benefit. It's so that you can experience peace. It's so that you can have hope. It's so you can actually walk around in authority like you were created to. It's so that you can actually be free. Oh, man, we have to understand the Lord's intentions for us are always good. They're so good, but we doubt it, and it keeps us from getting free. In Zechariah's vision, there's an adversary. Secondly, there's an authority. And lastly, there is an admonishing. There is an admonishing. There's a a charge. There's an encouragement. There's an exhortation. Zechariah chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, it says this. Then the Lord's messenger admonished Joshua. The Lord of heavenly forces proclaimed, If you will walk in my paths, if you will keep my charge, then you will lead my house and guard my courts. And I will allow you to walk among those standing here. You see, not only does Jesus actually want to set you free, I love this because this is such good news. After he sets you free, he actually wants to give you two things that are found in this verse. Promotion and revelation. Like, That's actually Jesus' desire. He wants to set you free so that he can give you greater promotion and greater revelation. Check it out. Jesus wants to actually take you higher. He wants promotion in your life. You will lead my house is what he tells Joshua. And then the Lord actually wants to take you deeper. He actually wants to speak into your life. He wants to actually be real to you. He wants to give you fresh bread every single day of your life. He wants revelation to be real in your life. What does he say? I will allow you to walk among those standing here. You see, that statement is so extraordinary to me because we have to remember that Zechariah, he's having a vision. He's not just in like Starbucks. He's not just at some random coffee shop or North Room. Where is he? Man, he's surrounded by heavenly messengers. He's surrounded by angels. He's in the very presence of God. And, and that's what's actually being offered to Joshua, the high priest. He's saying, man, if if you allow me to do the hard work of getting you free, you're going to walk in the very presence of God. You're going to know me like you only, you couldn't even dream of knowing me. And not only are you going to know me, but I'm going to take you higher than you ever could on your own. The incredible thing is that offer is actually available to us too. I'll close with this. I, I I love the scripture so much. I I try to read the Old Testament uh, at least once a year, and the New Testament three times a year. And I I was rereading the book of Revelation uh, this last week. And Revelation chapter 1, in fact. And it was so funny because the thing that stood out to me is it's so interesting. It's so, like, peculiar. I I actually want to share it with you. It's kind of interesting. But Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, "A, A revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Christ made it known by sending it through his angel. To his servant, John. I I, I italicized and bolded those words. To his servant, John. For some reason, I couldn't get past that. I couldn't get past those words. To his servant, John. Who this revelation was actually for. Who it was actually entrusted to. If you know a little something about John, you know that John, uh, for all you Enneagram lovers, John was a type two on the Enneagram, which means this, man. All he wanted was to love and to be loved. Like, that was John. Like he was just he was the cuddly guy, he was the affectionate guy, the guy that kind of creeps everyone out. Cause he's like, How you doing, bro? You know? I mean, he just wanted love. That's John. And he's the guy who wrote, 1 John 4.16, it says he's the guy who wrote, God is love. He's the guy who famously wrote John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. he's the guy that referred to himself, this is kind of weird, in the third person by calling himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And yet, guys. He's the guy who, during the Last Supper, Jesus' very last night on the earth, the scripture says that he was literally reclining at Jesus' side, like literally just lounging on Jesus' back, like just reclining, just chilling. That was how intimate, how real, how relational his friendship with Jesus actually was, and he's the guy that Jesus entrusted with the greatest revelation and vision of all time. He's the guy that, in fact, on the cross, even, Jesus looks down and if you've ever by the way this isn't in my notes but if you've ever wondered if jesus cares about the details of your life this is proof jesus is on the cross dying for all of humanity he sees his his mom and and, and his best friend the disciple john and he looks at john and he goes take care of my mom he goes john this is your mom now and mom this is this is your son man the lord cares about the details in your life but but who was the guy john the guy who reclined at Jesus' side. Man, it wasn't the brash, bold, fearless Peter, though I think we need those. Come on, it wasn't the type A driven, zealous Paul. Who was it? It was John, the one who reclined with Jesus, the one who just relaxed and hung out in his presence. You want promotion? Recline with Jesus. You, you want to you be used greatly by God? Recline with Jesus. You want breakthrough in your life? Recline with Jesus. You want healing in your life? Recline with Jesus. Come on, you want to walk in power, in authority? Recline with Jesus. You want to live a free life? Recline with Jesus. Recline with Jesus. Man, it reminds me of something else that Zechariah said, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. This is what he said. He said, this is the Lord's word. It's not by power. It's not by mind. It's not by your strength. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. Jesus will get you exactly where you need to be if you just recline with him. He will do exactly what needs to happen in your life if you just recline with him. Allow him to set you free. Allow him to take the filthy clothes off of you and put on priestly robes. Allow him to change your life, to take off the jacket, to roll away the stone. You are so loved. You're safe in Jesus. And church, a great church is a free church. A great life is a free life. Jesus came to set you free. Would you pray with me this morning? Thanks again for listening to the Mission Church podcast. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up on our weekly sermons. If you're in the Bay Area, we would invite you to come join us on Sundays. You can find all the details on our website at missionchurchca.com. Again, thanks so much for listening, and we hope to see you soon.